I'm a writer. I love writers and I coach writers. So it makes sense that I'd interview writers from all areas, blogging, TV, film, songwriting, podcasting, but also the new writers, the first timers that did it, that took the plunge because at one point they heard from someone, you should write a book about that. Do you ever get to those Zoom networking meetings where you sort of connect with other people, but then you hear that one person talk and they're really speaking your language? When business strategist Diane Wingert started to talk about her several marriages and her single parenting and her multiple careers, my ears really perked up because I feel like we're of the same lane. And I feel like we're kindred flames. But what really hit me deeply was how she moved through this shame and guilt about being outside the box in her process. And I was like, hell yeah, like I want to have her on the show and I want to know more about that. So it's great to have you on the show, Diane. You know, what was really funny, Kim, is that I think we were both feeling the same thing in that networking meeting. Like maybe we were maybe not quite in the right room for each of us. Right. And when I was talking and introducing myself, I saw your face change in my peripheral vision. <laughs> and I saw you grab a pen and started writing something down. And And I immediately thought, she's the reason I'm here. We are meant to meet. And so here we are. Here we are, like swapping podcasts, supporting each other, like speaking about this topic, which is something that I I really feel lonely about, you know, that I don't talk to a lot of people about. And I hope that we can, you know, reach viewers and listeners that are also in the same boat. So let's get into this. Like when we had a conversation after we had that, you know, meeting of the minds at that networking group, you talked about like that you are in this continuous personal evolution. Tell us a little bit more about that. You know, it took me decades to put this together. I think that's just how life works. Right. And what I realized is that in my observation, Kim, most people pick and stick, meaning they have an idea about who they are, the kind of life they're meant to have, who they're meant to be surrounding themselves with, their career path, their lifestyle, all the things pretty early in life, maybe high school, maybe college. They pick who they think they are, and then they stick with it. Like I have met people who literally take the same vacation every year. They go to the same <laughs> restaurants. The same timeshare. Right. Exactly. And they've had the same friends forever. Now that is awesome for them. For them. But I thought, well, that's the norm. Like there's something wrong with me if I'm not, if I'm like evolving right? Yes. Into other yes. areas, even though it's painful and challenging, which sometimes you wish the easy road would have been like a lot heavier, but that's not who you are. I've thought it so many times that what is the matter with me that I just can't stay the course? Because let's face it, Kim, our culture favors those who pick and stick, even though as the world around us is changing at an exponential rate, I think those who are on that path of continuous personal evolution, people like you and I are actually going to fare better in the future. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, to stand in that space of, I don't want to be in this marriage anymore, and then I'm going to get into another marriage and 
I don't want to be in that marriage anymore. Or here's a career that I've done good in, maybe not great in. And then there's like shame. So let's talk about like that shame of your success. How do we reframe that so it has nothing to do with success at all when you move on? This is such an astute question. I'm grateful you're asking me. Here's the thing. Most people won't change unless there's failure. And even then, they will fight it with both hands gripping the wheel. I am one of those true outliers who has left things that were successful by anyone's standards, including my own. Mm, Tell me more about that. What does that mean? I had a very successful first career and I outgrew it. I had a very successful second career and I had an enviable private practice that most of my colleagues would give a, I, I, I don't know if it's okay for me to swear on the show. So okay. They, they'd give a tit for, right? Or right. a testicle, right? <laughs> but, uh, and that's not really swearing. It's just me being it's just body who parts. I am. It's yeah. just being yeah. who I am. <laughs> I think this is what made it shameful because most people, even if they're the kind that stay the course in whatever, they actually treat it as a badge of honor that they stay the course, even though they might no longer be satisfied. I felt like, yes, I grew into this. I went all in on it. Whatever I do, I don't do anything half-assed. It's full ass or no ass. So my marriages, my careers, my hobbies, my friendships. So you can say I gave it all. I gave it the I best do. try. Yeah. And I don't consider anything I've walked away from a failure. I consider it to be complete. So once I'm complete with something, it means it is now constraining me. Once I've sort of like, if you think about like if you've ever had a fish and I am not a fish person, I'm a dog person, but this is what I understand. Fish will grow to a certain size based on the size of their container. So I was a fish who would hop into a new bowl or aquarium or ocean or whatever, and I would grow until it no longer felt spacious to me, until I no longer felt that I could achieve more or be more or experience more. And then it started to feel like a too tight pair of shoes. And I needed to go. I love that. I love the too tight pair of shoes. That's a great that's a great metaphor for exactly how it feels. And it's this whole thing like, well, why can't it just be good enough? You know, like, why can't you just be satisfied? Why do you always have to move on? Like, why can't I've gotten that energy from people before where they're like, well, God, like, I mean, really? Like, do you really need more? I mean, why can't you just be satisfied with what you have? And now there is something to be said with sitting back, taking some inventory, asking what am I possibly chasing? Is there something that I'm going for, like an accolade or something that I could maybe do some work on me on? And I have. And then other times I don't have that lesson till later where I'm like, oh, wow, because I sometimes think I'm moving slow. <laughs> but but when I sit back later and think about it, I'm like, that was actually kind of fast, you know, for other people's standards. But is it fast for our standards? It's hard to say. So when did you first wake up knowing you needed that first change? You talk about your that really successful career. What was that like moment? What was that story? I think for me, it's usually what I would consider a dawning awareness. It, it's not a lightning bolt. I mean, that's really sexy and that's good storytelling when you just wake up one day and suddenly you're enlightened by this new understanding of your reality. 
for me, it was a more gradual experience where I would realize, for example, I was in the Christian church. I was in the evangelical Christian church for 20 years. Wow. And then I had a decade where I wouldn't go anywhere near anything that even hinted at being an organized religion. And over time, I gradually found my way into Buddhism. I don't claim Buddhism as a religion. I claim it as a philosophy of life that happens to suit me very well. But you know, if I'm going to have an advanced directive in the hospital, I have to check one of those boxes. So I just check Buddhist. But here's the thing. I slowly began to realize that the conversations I was having, the experiences I was involved with, and my ability to have mutually beneficial conversations with the other people who were a part of that thing, career, marriage, hobby, friendship, whatever, religion, started to feel rote, started mm. to feel, I started to feel apathetic and sometimes frustrated. And then ultimately, if I didn't pay attention, those were my pink flags. I started to feel disengaged, disinterested, apathetic, even a little bored. I love the pink flag. I've only heard of the red flag. I make things up all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I have to think about the pink flag because maybe everything's not a red flag. No, it depends on how close you're paying attention to your own signals. Here's the way I think about it now. It's, <laughs> and again, it's like Steve Jobs says, you can't connect the dots until later and you look back and sort of connect them. So what I realize now is the things that I wasn't paying attention to were my pink flags. My pink flags were- What you ignored. What I ignored. Like, because they weren't potent enough and because some part of me knew if I actually pay attention to these things- I'm going to have to blow shit up. Mm -hmm. I'm right. going to have to burn the boats. And when you're talking about a marriage, you're talking about a religion, you're talking about a career, you're talking about a <sighs> lifestyle, a friend Big group. stuff. It's the loss. I would say it was the fear of loss. Let me go back a little bit. The pink flags were kind of the boredom, the apathy, the disinterest, the disengagement, the like, I feel like I've, I'm just not interested in this anymore. Mm -hmm. And the red flags were, I started to feel annoyed, frustrated, angry, resentful. Yeah. And a little bitter. Yeah. It's like, I'm getting deeper into it. So by that point, you know, if you let that go on too long, you're going to have to do something that is going to appear reckless and impulsive to others, but it has been brewing for months, possibly years, possibly decades, at least for me. Right. Of course. I think that's very, very true is sort of starting to catch it and then see if you can mitigate any of the damage that's going to be caused to you without discounting the fact that the truth is real. You want to leave, you want to move on. You know, I have an opposite story from you where I became a Christian just recently. Mm. And if you had asked me three years ago when I was in a Buddhist temple chant, like if I was ever going to be a Christian, I would have been like, what? But when I connect the dots, like you astutely said, all the way back, I was sort of an outlier to like Bible studies nine years ago. Like I was always interested in scripture, mm -hmm. but I had to identify what the driver was for me. The driver wasn't like, you know, hail Jesus and like evangelical, not at all. It was more like someone who could take me through the Bible. 
which is just like when I got into Alcoholics Anonymous and someone took me through the big book. Yes. That was the scripture for me then. And this is the scripture for me now. And people don't, people are like, what, you're a, like, you're a Christian. Like, and I have to be low key about it because it could be like weird for some people, you know, but it's my journey. There's all kinds of flavors too. I mean, there's all kinds of flavors, all kinds of flavors. And let's face it. Everybody thinks they know what something means, but it's their construct. So what Christianity means for you and what Christianity means for me are very likely two different things that have nothing to do with the fact that I'm a former Christian and you are currently a Christian. (laughs) That's it. That's basically all it is. Right, right. Exactly. You had mentioned when we had talked as well, too, that this pattern of sort of switching, right, the unsticking of what was stuck happens about five to 10 years. Would you feel, would you say the pink flags are like sort of feeling that coming? And are you aware now? Are you like, oh, what's my next five-year thing? What's my next 10-year thing? You know, is your husband concerned for his his involvement? (laughs) Well, actually, of my three marriages, the first one was five years. It ended because I realized I wanted children and he did not. That's a non-negotiable. That's a big reason. And I got pregnant. So yeah, non-negotiable. And that that sort of forced forced a decision. Second one was really more likely, no disrespect to him or to the two children we produced from that marriage, but I more likely entered into that marriage kind of on the rebound Mm. because the church I was in at the time was extremely inhospitable to me as a newly divorced single mother. Oh, it is what it is. It kind of it kind of propelled me into the second marriage, which I realized relatively early on was not ideal. Yeah. But we had children, two beautiful children, beautiful children. And I who are going to be here next week and I was going to make it work for several reasons. One, the teachings of the church really helped me stay the course and realize there were bigger things than whether I was satisfied or not. And I was in the church at the time, and I did leave that marriage and the church at the same time. Interesting. Okay. That was a house cleaning. Well, the trigger for that, Kim, really was that I'd had a serious car accident. My first career was in medical sales. I had a serious car accident on my own time, not not a work comp situation. And I was off work for a while. And it was a little bit of, you could say, kind of a wake up call. I prefer to call it a rude awakening because it was traumatic, right? Mm -hmm. And my kids were young. And in the medical sales career, I was spending a lot of time on the road. I was away from my kids a lot. That's a brutal career, right? And it was very, very male dominated at that time. So I had to prove for my gender and all that. Anyway, after this accident, I started doing some volunteer work in human services. And uh, because I grew up in a very violent, abusive, adoptive household as a kid, They asked if I wanted to volunteer with the domestic violence program, if I knew anything about violence. And I said, well, um, yeah, I grew up in an abusive household. And when I was 19, my boyfriend had a jealous fit and tried to throw me off the parking structure at USC. She says, you'll you'll do, you'll do. (laughs) Sign you up. (laughs) But what I realized is that what I felt was missing in my life, in my sales career, was I didn't feel I was doing something that had true significance impact and purpose. Mm. I am a very idealistic person. So I followed that lead into social work 
went back and got a master's in social work. And I had a 20-year career doing that. But in social work school, I started to experience a lot of people who had different lifestyles, different belief systems. Those things challenged me to the point where I realized that what I was seeking from the church was what I didn't get from my family of origin. Okay. But I no longer deeply aligned with the teachings. Right. So out of a sense of integrity, I felt I needed to go. And it sounds like you found your new quote unquote church through your new journey in the education process in becoming, you know, a th- you became a therapist, correct? What did- I did. Yes. I did. Okay. And and I didn't, here's what's so crazy. I swear abuse survivors find each other because, you know, they that's, do. that's they my history, do. you know, yes, and we see do. each other because we're go-getters. We have this like chameleon ability to move on because I think somewhere in the back of our minds is like a lot of our shit was messed up already. What do we have to lose really at this point? So we might be more like adventure seekers because of that. So like, that's a positive spin on abuse. We could find one, right? But I think we do, we are attracted to each other. You know, when we we talk about books on this show, hence the name of the show. And when I kind of asked you about whether you were going to write a book and you had mentioned you were interested in it, you were talking about, you had had some disappointment with like some past you know, programs you had signed up for that hadn't really paid off for you. What do you think your personal commitment, aside from what hasn't worked, what is your personal commitment in terms of being a writer? And what do you think you need to do to finally make this happen? Mm, Great question. I think that was kind of one of those latent awareness things like the pink flags. I did not realize because my conditioning early on was you need to conform to the norm. Mm. And I referred to it for many years as passing for normal. I'm twice exceptional. I have I have ADHD and I'm gifted. So my brain works differently. And yet, in order to stay safe in my abusive adoptive home and not be sent away like many of the other kids were, I needed to appear to be as perfect as I possibly could be. So my whole thing was passing for normal. My whole thing was not letting people know that I was struggling. And and by the way, when you're ADHD and gifted, you have abilities that are far above the norm and abilities that are far below the norm. It's very confusing. Wow, for very people. confusing. So so my goal was to just, you know, be in the fly zone, just be like as much like everybody else, but slightly better so you couldn't find fault with me. A fundamentally created was an inability to see what life would be like when I was truly and fully me. So when people would say over the years, they would hear a little snippet of this or that, they'd say, you should write a book about it, which is why I love the yeah, title of your podcast yeah. so much. <laughs> you should write a book about that. I would think that was, they were just blowing smoke up your ass. Well, so they were yeah, just it was just a compliment. Right, it was just right. flattery. And right. But people don't say that to people ever, really, by the way. That's what I always say to clients that are like, oh, my God, people have been saying this to me. And I'm like, you know, you're kind of like that makes you unique. That makes you the person who should be writing a book because it's not said to people all the time. See, This this is something I never heard until just now. I hear and we chatted about this earlier. I hear that like whatever it is, 81 percent of people say they want to write a book. Yeah. I did not know until you just said so that people do not 
tell other people you should write a book. No, very often. I assume they were like, people think they should write a book and people are telling them they should write a book in equal measure. No. And here's the crazy thing. You'd think I would be out there telling people all the time you should write a book. And I hardly never say it to anybody because I can see when things are just a tiny story and that's it. It's like an article. And I can mm. see in people when there's like, oh, there's deep terrain. Just in this short podcast episode, everything you've shared is a complete memoir. Passing for Normal is your title. We go back to like everything you grew up with. We go back into the pair. I mean, there's and there's so many nuggets. There's so many like walkaway nuggets, right? Of like how to be okay being in a continual personal evolution. There's so much that you have to share. So- so what's my level of commitment? Let me go back to your Yeah, to what's your, question. your level of commitment? I realize this is the question I should be asking my clients <laughs> before they become my client. Because here's the thing. You and I both know that there are talented, smart, driven, capable people out there who say, I'm going to do this or that. And they don't. I always, not always. I, for the last number of years, I would put it on my ADHD. People with ADHD are famous. Blaming. Or no, for having good, well, some of them are, many of them are, mm -hmm. uh, for having good intentions, but they suck at follow through, including me. Mm. It's like the impulse of, I want to do that. And then the executive skills that re are required to follow through, just they're not so strong. So you just don't. And I think for me, the commitment is probably stronger now than it's been in the past for two reasons. One, I'm older. Yes. And I realize you ain't going to be around forever, sister. It's time. It's time. And you don't know how long you're going to have your current level of health and vigor and energy and mental capacity and all that. You don't know. But I also think that the other hindrance for me, so the level of commitment I'd say is stronger now. Is it where it needs to be to put down serious coin and say, I'm doing this and I'm prioritizing this above all else? Not there yet. Mm -hmm. Willing to get there. Right. And I think there's probably a process that I need to go through, either self directed or other directed, to understand my sincere reservations. I will tell you one is that I think I have so many stories. And there's two reasons why that maybe frightens me or intimidates me is that I don't fancy myself a writer. I don't see myself as a writer. I don't yet have an identity as a writer. And I do. You mentioned something to me before about identity, right? Yeah. Your identity as an author. And something I have come to understand about myself as this continuous personal evolution. I always thought I'm just making a change. I'm just changing jobs. I'm just changing careers. It's a pivot. No, bitch. It is a total, <laughs> it is a total fucking transformation. Yes. Yes. So when I'm being snarky, I will say when I went from being a therapist to being a coach, I literally thought it was just like changing a, an outfit of clothing. Now I think it's actually more like what Bruce Jenner went through to become Caitlin. It is a complete deconstruction. And then a reconstruction. Yes. Absolutely. So that's, that's a lot to go through. 
Well, I mean, first of all, like you become an author by authoring, right? So you know so much when you begin and you have that first, that step, that leap, like I'm just going to do it. I've had classes before that deal with that barrier you're talking about where people come for like six to eight weeks and learn that they really can get permission to be an author. And that's helpful for people sometimes. But I find that the people that are most successful are the ones that are almost there, but not a hundred percent there. And they do it anyway. And then they find that they are like, that is the best gift that they've ever given themselves. And I could hold them to the fire on that. Like I could hold you to the fire on this. I could be like, you're like, you're so ready. Like you don't need to answer any of those other questions. You've done far more in your life where you haven't answered the questions and you've leaped anyway. So why is the book, poor little book is so daunting. And it's true. The book is like a very daunting thing, which is why there's a lot of these conversations, but we could talk about this forever. We're going to wrap up because I want you to leave the women mostly that listen to this podcast with some nuggets. If they're out there and they are sort of not on a linear path, but they're hiding, what's some of the best advice you can give them to break out and like take those risks out of the box? I'm smiling, which no one listening to this podcast will be able to see. But Kim, <laughs> Kim And Kim probably knows exactly what I'm going to say next. You have to act before you feel ready. And the reason why is that most of us, if you're a woman, you have been culturally conditioned to doubt yourself. Mm. You have been socially conditioned to believe you're not smart enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not educated enough, you're not experienced enough, you don't have enough worth saying, nobody cares, nobody wants to hear from you. Like we all have the same fucking soundtrack playing in our heads all the time. And some of us, in spite of that, manage to do phenomenal things. I mean, I read that Barbara Streisand until the very end of her singing career would routinely throw up before she went on stage. Yeah, I read that. What I took from that was that became part of her warm-up routine. Like instead of looking at that as, oh, this must mean you shouldn't do it. Right. Or I'm broken or I'm damaged or right. why can't I be stronger? It's like, just know, okay, we're going to throw up and then we're going to get on stage. <laughs> yes. So I would say you have to do the thing that you are called to do. Mm-hmm. No matter how scared you are, no matter how much self-doubt you have, because I promise you every person you respect and admire who's doing that thing felt exactly what you're feeling and they pulled the trigger anyway. 100%. 100%. Well, thank you so much for that. And it's been absolutely a pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure. You've been listening to You Should Write a Book About That. We love reviews. If you enjoyed our show, head over to your platform of choice to drop a review, share with a friend, or even better, if you want to write a book, be in touch. You can find us at kimohara.com.